it's truly a privilege and an honor to have today's guest, who is a patriot and a hero, and I say that with, with no hesitation. General David Petraeus is the former commander of the coalition forces in the Iraq and Afghanistan theaters, former CENTCOM commander, former director of the CIA, and author of the new book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. General, thank you for being here, and as I said, it's an honor. Great to be with you, Donnie. Thank you. Now, the premise of the book, basically, is that the mistakes throughout time in war just keep getting made. And we're obviously living in very inflammatory times now. First of all, before we get into it, give me give me from the view from where you are, what's going on over in Israel and, and Hamas and any strategic things you see happening there that could precurse them being up in the next edition of your next book, what's going on over there. Well, one of the themes that really emerged is my great co-author, uh, British historian Andrew Roberts and I uh, wrote the book in fact, we had to go back and rewrite the introduction, was to highlight the importance of strategic leadership. That's the leadership at the very top of a country, then at the very top of a military uh, organization that's going to carry out a campaign. And the strategic leaders have to perform four tasks superbly if they're going to achieve what it is they set out to, to, to achieve. And they have to get the big ideas right, the overarching strategy. They really have to understand the context in great rigorous detail in nuanced fashion. They have to communicate the big ideas uh, through the breadth and depth of their organization, country, military, and everyone else who has a stake in the outcome. In this case, it's the entire world. Uh, they have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, what we often think of as leadership. This is the example, the energy, the inspiration. Uh, it's the metrics that you use to determine whether you're winning or losing. It's how the strategic leaders spend their time because that's how they drive the implementation of the campaign plan, attracting great people, allowing those that are not measuring up to move on to something else. And then a very important fourth task, sometimes overlooked, you have to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. And I think as we look at the challenges that confront uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, his military leadership, uh, and their forces uh, in the wake of this positively barbaric, uh, unspeakable attack, uh, on innocent Israeli civilians uh, last weekend. As you look at that, the question is, what is the overarching big idea? Um, I think it appears that it is that they must destroy Hamas. And that's a military term. That means that you have to take out all of their bases, their headquarters, their infrastructure, keeping in mind that it's all generally in civilian areas, often underneath hospitals, sometimes using mosques for logistical storage and all the rest of this. You have to go after the leaders. You've got to capture or kill them. And you've got to go after these 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 fighters, really terrorists, because you need to think of Hamas really as the Islamic State, uh, along with uh, very much their Confederates, the Islamic Jihad uh, terrorists with whom they're in league. So if it is to destroy this, that means you're going to have to go through the entire country. Uh, you can't do what they've done in the past. So the, the the daunting nature of this is just extraordinary. Of all of those cases that Andrew Roberts and I looked at from 1945 to Ukraine, I'm hard pressed to find one that is more challenging than what is looming uh, in Gaza for the Israeli forces. If the Hamas terrorists were as creative in the defensive preparations as they were in the attacks, uh, making their way through these fences, the surveillance uh, overwatch that they had, the automatic machine guns, all the rest of this, 
this is going to be a very, very challenging scenario. And keep in mind that some of these individuals are willing to blow themselves up uh, to take Israelis with them. There will be rooms rigged to blow. There will be improvised explosive devices. There will be a challenge to figure out who are uh, the Hamas members uh, because they wear civilian clothes. They'll drop their weapon. Uh, so there, it's going to be a very, very daunting campaign. But I think that the conclusion is that destruction, destroy, is the task. It's, again, a doctrinal term, which means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. But then it implies another challenge, which is that you've got to prevent them from reconstituting. And I'm hard pressed to determine how that could be accomplished if you don't actually reoccupy Gaza. And of course, they don't want to do that. It's part of the reason they haven't gone all the way through in the past, among many other reasons, just the, the challenges of fighting a very, very substantial enemy uh, in an urban setting. And keep in mind, these are high rises. They're quite densely populated, in, in particular in the two major cities. You know, you've got about 2.3 million people and about 140 square miles. Um, so again, an exceedingly challenging mission. And they need to do, frankly, better than we did um, in anticipating what was going to happen after we toppled the Saddam Hussein regime uh, to ensure that there is very detailed thought and planning and preparation uh, for how they're going to administer uh, what they control, perhaps all of, uh, again, of Gaza, because that may be necessary to achieve the military task of destroying Hamas. Uh, and again, we didn't have the best of post-conflict plans. Uh, you know, there was an assumption that the uh, Iraqi bureaucrats would all stay at their post, that police services would, would still be there. Uh, and obviously that assumption proved faulty, and it was very, very difficult uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Saddam Hussein regime, uh, where everyone uh, left uh, to actually run that country. And then there were some some very significant uh, mistakes made in the wake of that as well, in terms of firing the Iraqi army without telling them how they could provide for their families and firing the bureaucrats uh, without uh, an agreed reconciliation process. They were Ba'ath Party members, got it, uh, but they had to be. And we actually needed those individuals to run the country that we now control. There, there was a moment, Donnie, during the fight to Baghdad where I was privileged to be the commander of the 101st Airborne Division at that time, two-star general. Uh, and we took the first major Iraqi city, liberated the holiest uh, site in Shia Islam, uh, Najaf, the Gold Dome Mosque, uh, and about 400,000 people, tough fighting, but nothing like the resistance that the Israelis are going to, to meet. Uh, but I remember calling my boss and I said, hey, boss, I've, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that we own Najaf. He asked, what's the bad news? I replied, we own Najaf, what do you want us to do with it? And in this case, I'm sure, I'm very confident, knowing the Israeli military leaders, knowing Prime Minister Netanyahu, that they are thinking long and hard about what do they do uh, in the post-conflict phase, noting that this that post-conflict phase is still going to have a lot of activity against terrorists insurgents. In fact, thinking about this as a counterinsurgency, more than just a conventional military operation, uh, is probably salutary because that focuses you on the fact that you're not just doing offensive and defensive operations, you're doing stability operations, which is the, the difference in a counterinsurgency campaign. Hearts and minds matter. Prime Minister Netanyahu not only has to communicate his vision for 
Gaza in the wake of this, uh, first of all, the operation itself, but then his vision for the wake of the operation in Gaza, but also make very clear that Israel is not fighting the Palestinian people, either in Gaza or in the West Bank, and then communicate a vision for them. Uh, because again, hearts and minds do matter. It, that instance of the hearts and minds, and that gets to the challenge, is that, look, even in this, there's been such a muted reaction to the heinous acts of Hamas, which is not a political organization, it's a terrorist group. Yep. And there's so much whataboutism and, and well, this, which is ridiculous. That's part of the problem Israel has, because now, as, as you've so laid out, obviously the, Palestine, the Hamas uh, terrorists are, in, are embedded with civilians. So... Israel, unfortunately, there will be collateral damage to innocent people, and that, and that will perpetuate the hatred towards Israel. So it, there is this Rubik's cube that is is just hard to fathom. No, there's no question. And again, there is a cycle of violence that this is part of, but it has escalated beyond anything before. Uh, again, heinous is exactly the reprehensible, unspeakable. Uh, again, you can't some whataboutism when it comes to what was done to, we believe, as many as 1,200 innocent Israeli citizens, certainly some soldiers as well. Uh, but to put that in perspective, Donnie, um, you think of the 9-11 attacks, and that's the way to think of this. Uh, we lost nearly 3,000 people uh, in those terrible attacks. Um, for Israel, 1,200 citizens is the equivalent of over 40,000 very light, and, and the Absolutely. number will probably grow. So think about our response had we lost 40,000 uh, innocent civilians. Uh, and it's very understandable that you hear the rhetoric that is coming from the prime minister, defense minister, major figures uh, in the Israeli government, some of their ambassadors who are known uh, for uh, access to the press, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's going to have to be tempered to a degree because again, you're not waging war on the Palestinian people. Uh, you're waging war on a terrorist group that has embedded itself in the Palestinian people in in uh, Gaza. But keep in mind that that group also runs Gaza. They're the governance. Uh, they run schools, hospitals, clinics, uh, basic service provision, all the rest of this. And if you topple that, just as when we topple the Saddam Hussein regime, um, again, it harkens back to Secretary of State Colin Powell's pottery barn rules. You break it, you own it. Uh, and so that, that real dilemma uh, is very present here. But yes, in the cons carrying out this campaign, there is going to be enormous collateral damage. There will be very considerable innocent civilian loss of life. There will be very tough Israeli casualties. There's nothing tougher than urban operations. Keep in mind that again, if they go all the way through with this, if the task is destroy, you've got to clear every building, every floor, every room, every basement, every tunnel. And by the way, there are tunnels all underneath uh, the major urban areas. It's a lot of where their infrastructure uh, is, is hidden. And by the way, you have to leave substantial forces behind to control access to these locations or the bad guys, the terrorists will re-infiltrate them and you'll have them at your back. You have to do this clearance sequentially. Again, we have a lot of experience with this. Uh, when I was privileged to be the commander, again, of the 101st or uh, multinational force or the whole surge uh, and so forth, we cleared major cities, um, Fallujah, Ramadi, parts of Baghdad, Bakuba, Mosul, and so on. 
Um, we help the Iraqi security forces clear Mosul, a city of two million people, which was controlled by the Islamic State, which, by the way, I think is what you need to, to equate Hamas to because they've done the kind of unspeakable acts that the Islamic State d distinguished itself for uh, with quotes around distinguish, even worse than Al Qaeda. Um, but how do you do this without alienating the entire population for which you're going to be responsible and in which you may have to uh, have security forces because, again, what is going to, to govern otherwise? And I can't see the prospect of, um, you know, Fatah taking over or after all, Hamas defeated Fatah. I can't see an Arab country stepping up uh, to put its soldiers on the ground. Um, so the, the dynamics here could not be more challenging. They are really, this is Fallujah or Mogadishu on steroids. Were you surprised at the vulnerability that they were able to pull this off? Because Israel always has the reputation of of their defense system, and I, the world is in shock. Certainly, we're in shock over here. And that, I'm not going to say how easily this could happen, but how this could happen the way it happened in plain in, in plain daylight. Well, it turns out that this is quite a sophisticated attack. Um, what's astonishing, and I know Shin Bet, and of course this is more Shin Bet because that's the internal security. Gaza and West Bank are treated that way. Shin Bet is normally, as we say in the intelligence world, they're upstream of something. In other words, they can see it coming. They're actually following the planning and the preparation and the positioning and all the rest of that. And that obviously was not the case here. What happened clearly is that Hamas employed vastly better operational security uh, to carry out this very, very complex plan. Again, air, ground and sea, paragliders, I think wind surfers apparently uh, everything from golf carts to bulldozers, large numbers of individuals. And in many cases, they uh, presented these as either demonstrators initially or workers or whatever it might be. And they managed to neutralize the very sophisticated surveillance uh, and detection systems, in part by knocking out the cell towers or the communications relays that actually connect these different, this, all these different cameras automated machine guns and all the rest along this very substantial fence um, to actually aggregate the feeds at headquarters where they're literally watched and so forth. And of course, they did it uh, in a day of holy observance, uh, some soldiers on leave, many c citizens at, at music festivals and other celebrations. Um, so again, very much uh, a huge surprise. Mossad certainly as well, given that Iran undoubtedly at least funded, supported in various ways. Hard to say how deeply involved they were in this. I've actually heard some things that may, they may have been surprised, at least at the timing. Um, and then, you know, other intelligence agencies, again, that might have picked up some signals. And clearly, the very, very substantial improvement in operational security, and even reportedly, uh, deceiving uh, those that were using the traditional sources and methods, if you will, uh, as to what it was they intended to do. In other words, understanding what their vulnerabilities were, using those to send false messages uh, to lull the Israelis to sleep. And then, of course, apparently there was some displacement from uh, southern Israel over to the West Bank. And, of course, the 
discord within uh, the huge demonstrations, rallies, and all the rest of that undoubtedly had to take some attention of internal security services as well, given that they posed uh, threats to lawmakers uh, and to law and order in Israel. So you have a very, very uh, unique set of circumstances, but the most important of which was the extraordinary complexity of this plan and how clever, uh, again, these terrorists were in, in planning for it, positioning the forces, training and equipping, and then actually carrying it out without the Israelis really picking up on it, picking up the indicators and warnings until it was too late. Let's, let's get to the book. Uh, the book uh, chronicles the mistakes made in conflicts going back to World War II. Well, and- successes too. I mean, there are plenty of successes in those periods. I mean, the Gulf War and a number of the different insurgency campaigns or counterinsurgency campaigns and so forth, the Falklands. And uh, so there's a number of those as well, Donnie. But, but what seems to be the big determinant was the quality of strategic leadership. Did they get the big ideas right uh, in particular? Uh, and if you don't, um, then uh, a campaign is building on a very shaky intellectual foundation. It, the book is very up to date. Obviously, it, it talks about Ukraine. Let me read a passage. Within a month of the invasion of Ukraine, Russia had lost twice as many military personnel killed as the United States had in 20 years in Iraq. And by March 2023, the Russian death toll is thought to have reached five times the 13,000 soldiers that the USSR lost after a decade in Afghanistan in the 1980s. War is still very much worth studying. So what are the early returns on the mistakes that Putin has made here? Well, you have a case where you can compare and contrast, again, strategic leaders. Um, You have Putin, who's done a miserable job, frankly. I mean, really got the big ideas wrong. I mean, first of all, overestimated the capabilities of his force, thinking that they could drive right into Kiev, topple the government, uh, replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure, and go home to a victory parade after a few days, um, totally underestimating the capabilities and determination Uh, and fighting spirit and creativity uh, of the Ukrainian forces. Um, And then just continuing on from there, uh, he's done a miserable job communicating to the rest of the world, good to his own people, but that's because he controls uh, the vast majority of of media and various other platforms. And you compare and contrast that with Zelensky, whose first big idea was huge, I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. I'm staying in Kiev. My family's going to stay in Kiev. We're going to defend Kiev and all Ukrainian males will stay in Ukraine uh, and on from there. Communicated it brilliantly, Churchillian, really just quite extraordinary. You're a student of this. This is what you do. Um, And his message is modulated, precise to each different legislature, uh, the parliament in the UK, uh, American Congress and so on. Of course, addressing uh, both houses of our Congress, uh, just as Churchill did some decades ago, uh, then overseeing this, you know, think of his example and contrast it with Putin. He changes from a suit uh, into something that is olive drab the day of the invasion. He never has come out of that. He reminds everyone with whom he meets that his country is at war and he's the commander in chief uh, of Ukraine's war of independence, its, its fight for its survival. Putin, on the other hand, in a, in a suit at the end of a long table with his, you know, minions down at the end. So they're reminded where they exist in the food chain, very seldom going to the front the way that, again, President Zelensky has. Um, and then, you know, constantly refining the big ideas, as Ukraine has had to do, by the way, with this counteroffensive this summer, 
where the initial plan didn't survive contact with the enemy, so they adjusted it from an armored uh, combined arms approach to infantry, fighting from tree line to tree line and so forth with much smaller uh, daily increments of progress. So uh, again, I think it's a very, very interesting case study in that regard, but let's note this is still uh, an uncertain outcome. Uh, the war continues. Uh, we very much need to authorize new appropriations for Ukraine, just as we need to do the same for Israel. And by the way, for our southern border and uh, federal emergency management agency and so forth. Um, but we'll see how this goes, noting that I think the U.S. government has has led this in a, in a bipartisan way, uh, the White House and Congress, quite impressively, albeit yes. with some decisions that I would have liked to have seen made sooner than they were, and which deprived, in the case of this counteroffensive this summer, uh, Ukraine having all of the uh, U.S. and uh, German Leopard tanks that they might have had, uh, Western aircraft, which were coming now, but would have been great if we could have had them uh, in their hands by this summer. I, I was just there four weeks ago, uh, and I was there four months ago uh, as well, and have a reasonable sense of the situation on the ground there. Uh, but again, Putin is not yet at the point where he's looking in the mirror and telling himself, acknowledging that he made a catastrophically bad set of decisions. He still thinks that he can outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans. And we have to prove to him that that is not the case by continuing to lead the effort to support Ukraine. Uh, and by also making sure that not only is the cost on the battlefield, but also on the home front where we are, in fact, tightening the economic, financial, and personal sanctions and export controls, and also going after those who are evading those controls as well. You obviously have uh, understand the apparatus of our entire defense system. How stretched will we, we obviously now have two major uh, wars that we are involved in that we will have to help? And does that tax the system or are we set up to handle that? No, I think it does tax the system, but I think we are capable of responding to that. Uh, we're already, for example, ramping up production of certain munitions that are being expended in Ukraine, for example, at an extraordinary rate. You know, I think about how many artillery rounds we shot just, say, during the fight to Baghdad, uh, and it's probably about one day's worth of uh, Ukrainian expenditure, if that. Uh, and so we're dramatically increasing the production, for example, of 155 millimeter howitzer rounds some of the rockets, all these different, the air defense systems. And just as we are also now rushing to Israel, uh, the additional Iron Dome interceptors uh, that we have and other munitions that they will need, some precision munitions and so forth. Uh, that is crucial. We'll have to, I think, a lesson, in fact, that our country and the countries of NATO, and I, all, it was just over there uh, as well in, in Warsaw for the Warsaw Security Forum, the big takeaway for European countries is not only that, yes, they do need to spend 2% of GDP on defense, as they all agreed with NATO, but of course, Germany, prominent among them, had not been doing that prior to the invasion of Ukraine, but also that they have to dramatically increase their military industrial base, uh, that wars like we see in Ukraine, obviously, uh, are no longer a thing of the past. Uh, and so we have to think our way through that. It has implications for uh, elsewhere in the world. But, you know, we have an 850 or more billion dollar defense budget, more than the next eight or nine or 10 countries uh, spend together uh, in any given year. And we can do this. 
uh, and we can actually carry out missions in other parts of the world as we are. Although we do need to accelerate the transformation of our capabilities from what are termed legacy systems, uh, largely a very small number of very large platforms, which are very useful, shouldn't be done away with, but should be reduced relative to increasing uh, the development and production of a massive number of much smaller systems, unmanned systems that are either remotely piloted or over time increasingly algorithmically piloted where the human in the loop is the human who actually writes the software and develops the conditions that the machine meets before it takes a kinetic or non-kinetic action. And this is not just in the air where we've used these very extensively uh, all the way back to when I was in various commands in Iraq and Afghanistan and Central Command, uh, but on the surface of the sea where we're seeing, by the way, Ukraine do this very effectively, have forced the Russian fleet further and further offshore uh, from southern Ukraine, and they had to evacuate the bulk of their ships from the port of Sevastopol uh, in Crimea because they have the range to hit them there with these drones. They even have subsurface drones now with very substantial munitions on them, and they're developing ground systems as well. So that's the future of warfare. And although we see hints of that in Ukraine, it's not at all what it will be uh, if we bring our advanced systems to bear. But we need to hasten that transition because that's the essence of deterrence uh, in the Indo-Pacific in particular. We have to, above all, the number one task for America and our Western allies and partners is to ensure that what our national security advisor has described as severe competition with China does not erupt into true conflict. You know, the money spent on deterrence inevitably is very well worth it compared with the money you spend on conflict. Along those lines, obviously, the third pressure point in addition to Ukraine, the Middle East, is what's going on potentially with China and Taiwan. And you write, we can be certain the military lessons from Ukraine are being studied very carefully by the high command of the People's Liberation Army, and that a good deal of intensive staff work is currently being undertaken in Beijing to apply these lessons to the case of Taiwan. And you say this is potentially, and, and obviously, not obviously, the most explosive situation because what happened in, with, with Taiwan would bring the two superpowers to the table face-to-face. That's correct. And again, what we've got to do is make sure that every morning when folks get up in Beijing, uh, the most senior leaders look at the situation and say, not today. Uh, And then at some point in time, we can get back to uh, an understanding that it would probably be much more mutually beneficial uh, if we could cooperate on a lot more uh, and compete or conflict Uh, a lot less. Obviously, General Milley, what he did, I found to be heroic when he reached out to China to assure them during when January 6th was happening and Trump called him treasonous and at another time he'd be executed. I just love your reaction to that. Well, I have a lot of respect uh, for Mark Milley. We served together numerous times over the years. He's a Princeton undergraduate. I'm a Princeton graduate. So we have the Princeton in the nation service uh, affinity as well. Fellow infantrymen, a lot of time in the combat zones, uh, I think served our country exceedingly well. Uh, and I think what leaders do at that level, I was the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs for a couple of years when I was a colonel, had a great vantage point on that. Um, our chairman at that time, the great General Hugh Shelton, reached out repeatedly. At that time, the counterpart that mattered most was the chief of the general staff uh, of the Russian Federation. Um, I remember one time flying all the way to 
I think it was Vienna, uh, just so the chairman could have lunch with him and then literally turn around and flew back to make a meeting at the White House. Again, these relationships are important. Even though we were adversaries, sure. um, you do need to communicate. At the height of the Cold War, um, we were actually reaching arms control agreements. In fact, I worked for the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe when we did the Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreement. So I think it's entirely appropriate, especially when there might be a, a misperception of a situation in the United States. Um, you know, there was outreach like this reportedly uh, during the final weeks, days uh, of the Nixon administration as well. So again, I think it's very important to have communicate. One of the challenges right now uh, and the reason that the administration is working hard to try to establish some workable relationships with China and have guardrails, if you will, and a floor for the relationship uh, is because of concern about lack of communication. You'll recall when that uh, Chinese surveillance uh, balloon floated over the United States, uh, they picked up the hotline in the Pentagon and no one answered in Beijing. That is not good. We also need ship to ship, bridge to bridge as the term communications out in the South China Sea. You don't want to see something that goes bump in the night erupt into conflict. Uh, and so, again, communications are very important. And I think that was what it was that he was seeking to do. You've used the set of words and you've referenced this. So how does it end, which is so critical in any warlike situation? And you led the troops in Afghanistan and you've been outspoken uh, about the withdrawal. Talk to me about how you see the state of, of Afghanistan today and what what you would have had, what not what you would have done, but what, what would have been a better solution? Well, as unsatisfactory as the situation was, um, as maddening as it was, given the imperfections of some of our Afghan partners and of our Pakistani partners who refused to take action uh, against the Taliban and the Haqqani network, who were the major elements of the insurgency causing such difficulty for our Afghan partners and coalition forces, despite all of that, um, I felt uh, both when the decision was first made to withdraw and the agreement was reached, and then when the new administration decided to follow through with it, that the prospects were likely going to cause us, after the fact, to question the decision that we made. Uh, and, and I said as well, several weeks prior to the uh, collapse of the Afghan forces that I feared they would psychologically collapse because we didn't just pull out our troops. We pulled out the 17,000 contractors that maintained the sophisticated U.S. helicopters that we insisted on providing to them by American. I understand the impulse, but they couldn't maintain those. They could maintain the old Russian and Soviet versions that we were still getting when I was privileged to be the commander there. Uh, and that was the linchpin of the entire defense strategy for the Afghans, that they have modestly equipped and trained troops in all the population centers and protecting critical infrastructure. And then you have a 35,000 strong Afghan commando force, quite well equipped, quite well trained and proven over the years. And when they get hit out in the hinterlands, the commandos get on helicopters and go out there, reinforce them uh, and resolve the situation. Uh, when that component of it, when the mobility component uh, is eliminated, and it did because the operational readiness degraded very quickly, and then they're hit in multiple locations. Once the troops realize nobody's coming to the rescue, you had troops who previously fought very hard. I thought it was very unfair to say the Afghans wouldn't fight. The Afghans fought very hard. They'd lost 16 times the soldiers and policemen that we lost 
uh, in that 20-year involvement. Uh, but they're not going to continue to fight if no one's coming to the rescue and they're getting overwhelmed and they see their political leader get on a helicopter and, and head to the Central Asian states. So um, I, I said then that I fear that we would come to regret the decision. I believe we should have because I think the outcome is not just heartbreaking um, and tragic. I think it's disastrous. Half the population can't even go to high school, much less to college, can't participate meaningfully in the economy, can't even travel around, be on the streets in many cases without a male escort. Uh, and then you have half the population as well that's uh, basically starving. Uh, so again, yes, it was a maddeningly imperfect, frustrating situation. But I felt that keeping 3,500 troops on the ground when we hadn't lost a soldier in 18 months, not just because of this agreement with the Taliban, this very flawed agreement, but because we were no longer on the front lines. It was the Afghans who were fighting and dying for their country. We were providing advice, assistance, and enablers, enablers meaning close air support, uh, drones, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, emergency logistics, and so forth. And again, very, very uh, frustrating situation because it wasn't all we'd hoped it would be, but I felt that that was better than what would follow. And I believe that that is the case. And of course, witness that within a short period of time, the leader of Al Qaeda who succeeded Osama bin Laden is found in a house within a few blocks of the Afghan White House, the presidential palace. Uh, and of course, in a very impressive operation that, that has been acknowledged, uh, our forces took him out. You like, I'm sorry, you like, you're talking about the future of war. Uh, AI, take me through, uh, take us through where AI can be, just kind of just uh, white paper it, where AI can and will be used in warfare and the dangers. Well, again, a combination of machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence uh, is going to enable systems to perform tasks vastly more effectively, efficiently, and quickly uh, than can human systems. Noting, of course, they don't ever have to sleep. They don't have to go to the bathroom. They do have to be recharged periodically. Uh, and you have to attend to that. Uh, and you have to link them with communications and all the rest. But again, the capabilities that you have here are going to be really extraordinary. And they're constantly updating their systems, their software, the programming. Uh, they'll be learning uh, entities. Uh, they'll pull many more G's in, a, in an aircraft than can a human body. Um, and I've been in an FNA 18 where they're testing me and, you know, you're hitting seven G's, seven and a half, and your vision's going like this. Um, so they are going to transform warfare as we know it. Uh, and increasingly, it's going to be machine on machine in the highest uh, end of conflicts. And you do see some of that. Uh, already again in Ukraine. This campaign against the Black Sea Fleet of Russia is largely being carried out by drones. Uh, and in many cases, they uh, are autonomous. Uh, so it's the software which does incorporate the latest in machine learning and gradually getting into true artificial intelligence as well. That's the piece that will be the learning component uh, of this, not just performing repetitive tasks uh, that the machine has been programmed to do. Um, so that that's where warfare is headed. That doesn't mean that you don't have to still do all the other uh, types of warfare on the spectrum of conflict. We still have to keep an eye and pressure on uh, Islamist extremists in various places. We still will have to 
enable others to conduct counterinsurgency operations, uh, we'll still have to be prepared for traditional sort of conventional warfare. Uh, but the future, especially if you think about between peer competitors, is going to be what, what in which we are finally going to operationalize an old adage that we used to recite during the Cold War, but really couldn't operationalize. We couldn't turn it into reality. And that was what can be seen can be hit. What can be hit can be killed. The truth is we couldn't see all that much. We didn't certainly didn't have drones, didn't have the ubiquitous surveillance and reconnaissance platforms that we have now. So you're pretty limited in the depth to which you could see. And then if it was moving, it was very hard to, to, to uh, target, uh, to hit. Nowadays, you can see everything um, and you can hit everything and you'll hit it with, again, not manned systems, but unmanned systems that will maneuver at the end and be very difficult to defend against. And therefore, you can kill it. So among the tasks that we have to do in the Indo-Pacific and that we are doing, to be fair, very impressive uh, commander of Indo-Pacific Command, um, we are hardening our bases, we're dispersing our forces, we're going underground, we're improving the defenses of them, all part of the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, uh, and then transforming our forces, uh, as I described as necessary earlier, but not doing it quite at the rate that I think we should. Again, there's understandable uh, embrace of some of the so-called legacy systems, especially if they're made in your district or um, tied up at a pier in your your district's port or something like that. So that's how this is going to evolve. Uh, but you'll still have the kind of war that we're seeing about to be waged in Gaza as well. Noting again, I just cannot imagine uh, more difficult circumstances, more difficult context. Uh, or the magnitude of the difficulty that lies ahead. And sadly, tragically, um, the, what is going to fall on the, uh, the people, uh, the Palestinians of Gaza, uh, and they need to hold Hamas responsible for that, not Israel. But inevitably, they will, they will not completely. General, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for 37 years of service. The book is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you are a hero and you are a gentleman. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Donnie. A real privilege to be with you.